Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Over the holidays and into the new year, we'll still be publishing new shows to keep you up to speed with the NFL playoff race, the NBA, and award season. We've published some great episodes in the month of December, including two rewatchables on Happy Gilmore and The Godfather Part 2. Chris interviewed Watchmen showrunner Damon Lindelof on The Watch, and The Ringer NBA show ranked the top 25 players of the 2019-2020 season so far. Lastly, happy holidays from The Ringer. I'm Sean Fennessy, and this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about keeping these gems uncut. The conversation is with myself, and that is right. We've waited long enough. It's time to dig into Uncut Gems. The Safdie brothers' brilliant, relentless, hysterical, gorgeous, melancholy, and for me at least, deeply relatable masterpiece. Later in the show, I'll have a deep dive with the Safdies, Josh and Benny, into the long road to getting this thing off the ground, the making of the movie, and pretty much everything in between. Plus, we'll do a little Nick's talk. Last time I saw the guys, they were on the show two years ago, and they were telling me about the movie. And in fact, they were so excited to talk about the movie that they started talking about it on mic before things had been fully settled. A lot has changed since then. Hopefully you're going out to see it on Christmas. It is a beautiful Christmas movie. And I thought we'd switch things up a little bit on the show because of that. So before the interview, I'd like to just talk a little briefly about the things that I love best about Uncut Gems. First and foremost, we got to talk about Adam Sandler. Adam Sandler, obviously one of my favorite actors. If you heard me on the rewatchables Happy Gilmore, you know what admiration I have for him. Big talking point of this movie has been Adam Sandler going serious and how this is a thing that he does every 10 or 15 years to remind us that he's interested in serious things. People pointing to Punch Drunk Love or funny people movies like that. The truth is, he takes these roles on a little bit more frequently than you'd imagine. There's a bunch of movies that we don't talk about that aren't really very good, but that feature Sandler trying to do dramatic work. Rain Over Me, the 9-11 drama, The Cobbler, the sort of famously... Uh, ill-conceived Tom McCarthy movie, Men, Women, and Children, Jason Reitman's movie, which really came and went, Spanglish, James L. Brooks's dramedy about a man in crisis. These are all his attempts to do serious work. Sandler isn't just doing dopey comedies. The reason that Uncut Gems is so right for him, though, is that it features so many of the things that he does well on that that Happy Gilmore Rewatchables. The Safdies and and Bill and I talked about Adam as, as, as sociopath as crazy person, as person with pent-up rage and confusion and aspiration and a singularly driven focus to accomplish, that is what Howard Ratner in Uncut Gems is like, too. He is a man on a mission, and he's willing to break all reasonable rules of society to get his mission accomplished. It's such a thrilling performance. It's such a uniquely cool vehicle for him that that is by far the number one thing about it that I want to talk about. Secondly, it's a movie about gambling. It's not exactly a Rounders-esque story of gambling. It's a movie about sports gambling. No movies are good at sports gambling. Every movie that wants to do sports gambling invariably makes the bets too big, makes the stakes too high, makes them too low, misunderstands how to do things. This is the first movie I've ever seen that really perfectly communicates what a parlay bet is. In fact, it's the absolute crux of the movie. I won't spoil anything by talking about it. And if you love to watch basketball and think about the gambling possibilities, or if you're a degenerate who actually gambles on sports, you will see that 
this is the, the, the really the pinnacle of a movie that is attempting to address this issue in our lives. Probably not since um, Robert Altman's California Split have I seen something that cares about these ideas and the people that are consumed by gambling in this way. Third thing, the New York movie lineage. The Safties obviously are New Yorkers. I am a New Yorker. We are obsessed with movies about and set in New York. This movie feels like it is in that succession train of movies like Sweet Smell of Success, like Dog Day Afternoon, like Hannah and Her Sisters, like Wild Style, Do the Right Thing, After Hours, King of New York, you know, Abel Ferrara, Martin Scorsese, Spike Lee. These filmmakers understand the city and they understand the energy of the city, which is fast and weird and uncaring about other people. It is easy to move through the city and not think about anybody but yourself, even though you are surrounded by humanity. That's one of my favorite things about this story. Fourth thing, the NBA. We mentioned sports gambling already, but there are also vanishingly few movies that really get basketball. <laughs> I don't, it's shocking to think of, but count on your hand how many great NBA movies there are. There, there are hardly any. We're not talking about like Eddie or Celtic Pride or something like that. This is a serious movie that imagines the NBA in 2012 and imagines Kevin Garnett as a fulcrum of that league and a significant part of our story. Obviously, Kevin Garnett, even though it's 2019, has not aged very much and he is incredibly credible as Kevin Garnett. And I think he's giving probably the best NBA player performance of all time. Bobby, any other standout NBA player performances that you've ever seen in a movie? No, I mean, there's not that there's not very many good ones. Yeah, they're mostly played for jokes. And they're not great. And it's funny to talk, to hear the Safties talk about how they cast this part because once upon a time, it was going to be Amari Stoudemire. Then for a minute, it was going to be Kobe Bryant. And then for a long time, it was going to be Joel Embiid. I do like the idea of Joel Embiid as a comic actor at some point. But I actually think that he might have taken away from it. You think so? Like, I think he would have been in a different movie just based on his public persona. Maybe he could have gotten really intense and maybe he couldn't have gotten really serious. But from what I see of Joel Embiid, he's kind of like this big goofball dude. I and agree. KG is like really intense. And this movie is so tight and stressful that I feel like sometimes I'd be like, when is Joel Embiid going to crack a joke? And it would never come. I think that's a great point. I completely agree. And it's it's pretty shocking how, how, how great he is in the movie, but it really, really works well. In addition to KG, the rest of the supporting cast is pretty, pretty breathtaking. It's a fine mix of hugely experienced, beloved figures, a lot of New York-esque figures, um, like Eric Bogosian, like Judd Hirsch, people that you remember from television or from movies in the 80s and 90s. People like Lakeith Stanfield, who's kind of quietly emerging as maybe one of the most interesting actors in the world right now. Obviously, people know him from Darius, as Darius from Atlanta, and he has a, a significant role in Knives Out this year. His part is fundamental to Uncut Gems, and he has a kind of a very low-toned swagger that is essential to the movie. But part of its genius is also the untrained actors, I'll say, that make appearances in the movie. The Weeknd <laughs> gives an entirely credible performance as The Weeknd, especially circa 2012 when he was in his high dirtbag phase first coming into the consciousness. Um, the, the, the big, big, big homie Mike Francesa plays a bookie. And uh, Bobby, did, did Francesa work for you? Absolutely gigantic stuff. Incredible. Just a, just a huge mood. From, from, from Mike. There's I, a whole small like cottage industry sliver of just conversation about Francesa specifically in the movie. I, I saw people arguing with him on Twitter about how he said he would never curse publicly, but he curses in the film. I'm thankful for it. <laughs> One of the other great parts of the movie, and, and, and our boss Bill Simmons has mentioned this before, but Julia Fox is just a real discovery. She plays Howard Ratner's love interest. And she, there's a tremendous profile of her in the New York Times that identifies her as a very specific kind of New York woman raised in Yorkville 
with a kind of Long Island attitude that is very familiar to a guy like me. She's very, very good. And of course, the the iconic Adina Menzel, who feels like the mother of so many people I grew up with on Long Island and is really nailing her part as Howard's soon-to-be ex-wife. Key part of this movie is Daniel LaPatton's score. Uh, those of you who are fans of One of Tricks Point never know his work. He is a kind of ambient s- instrumentalist who creates a kind of convulsive music. His music hurts my ears and soothes it at the same time. In this movie, the m- music is more new age. It's a it's much more, as the Safdies would say, about erupting chakras. It, there's something kind of spiritual going on here, even though it is propulsive and it keeps the movie uh, in, in that kind of anxiety-inducing feeling that we've been hearing people talk about ever since it was first announced. Um, it's a huge, huge accomplishment. It's definitely among my five favorite scores of the year, and it's worth checking out. The other thing that's really cool about a lot of the Safdie Brothers movies is because there feels like this very handmade, on-the-go on feeling, there's a, just a lot of regular guys, a lot of non-actors, a lot of people who work in the Diamond District, a lot of people who are gamblers, a lot of people who just come out of nowhere. One of the big heavies of the movie, I won't spoil it, spoil it but is just a guy that they found in Paramus, New Jersey, who's just like a local tough who wanted to be an actor. And he's giving arguably the most menacing performance in a movie in the last few years. I won't say anything more than that. Darius Kanji's cinematography, the way that this movie looks is, it's certainly a step up for the Safties. It's in keeping with the kinds of movies that they've made before. But Darius Kanji, for those of you who are not familiar with him, is a 64-year-old man from Tehran who's background as a filmmaker. He's shot some of like some of the great auteurist movies of the last 25 years. He has had a partnership with David Fincher for a long time. This is the guy who shot Seven. This is a guy who shot um, Panic Room. He, you know, he's, he also has worked with people like Michael Hanukkah. He's worked with uh, Juan Carwai. He's worked with Neil Jordan, Roman Polanski, Bernardo Bertolucci. I mean, this is really one of the most accomplished shooters in the history of movies. He shot Okja in 2017. He shot The Lost City of Z for James Gray. The idea of him working with such a young and inexperienced crew like the Safdies, who are both in their sort of early to mid-30s, is really exciting. And he brings a confident camera, a camera that is not afraid to get too close to Howard's face, but also can give you a little bit of sense of scope in the frame. I really, really love what he did there. Similarly, um, the editing of the movie, which works kind of in concert with Darius's shooting, is done by Ronald Bronstein and, and Benny Safdie. And Bronstein, who has been a co-writer and a collaborator and an actor for the Safties over the years, is essential to their mix and the, that relentless pace and the anxiety and the terror and the joy that you feel as you're watching the movie. A lot of that comes from Bronstein and Benny's editing. I'm very curious to see if this film gets nominated for Best Editing. I feel like there's an outside chance because I, I can sense in the community a lot of admiration for what they did here. Can I quickly say something about the sound editing too? Absolutely. I don't know if you have that on your little I, list that I you're writing I don't, but down. it's a great thing to talk about. I can't stress how hard it is to sequence the way that they cut different voices in when different people are talking. There is so much talking over each other in this movie. It is one of the most confusing sounding movies that I've ever heard or listened to. And as someone who edits vocals for a living, to hear it and to understand all of the work and the different craftspeople that had to have their hands on it for you to be able to understand even who's talking in a scene. Like I'm thinking of if you go to see the movie a scene where um, Lakeith's character is trying to quit and Adam Sandler is opening the gems from the fish. And to just understand as the phone is ringing, as there's people yelling in the hallway, as he's trying to quit and yelling at Sandler, to know who's talking, to have that clarity, that sound editing is just 
it's astonishing. The Safdies tell this great story about submitting the ADR script for all the lines that they're going to fill in for the film after they've sh- after the production has wrapped in post. And usually uh, something like that takes up maybe one, two, three pages. But the packet they submitted was 65 pages, and it included a series of speaking roles that the producers had never heard of before because what they wanted to do was essentially create characters who would be doing crosstalk over other characters who were doing crosstalk in the movie. You know, as a New Yorker, that's not an unfamiliar experience. If you've ever been in the Diamond District, if you've ever been in one of the showrooms like Howard has in the movie, you know that there are a lot of customers. And one is talking to one person working in the store and the other is talking to another person working in the store. And that is what modern life is. And we don't really think about those other people when we're walking around a store and who are having a conversation. We just keep moving on with our life on a day-to-day basis. That gives the movie a kind of hyper-reality that I think it makes it really effective. It's a great point, Bobby. Yeah, and I never felt like I didn't know what was going on either. Exactly. It's not confusing, which is, even though it might be intense, it doesn't, there's nothing baffling about what you're seeing up there. Uh, I also just wrote down here, this is the most Jewish movie ever made. I am not Jewish, so I don't know if I can confirm that, but it certainly feels that way. And um, The Ringer's Noah Malala is celebrating it as that. He certainly is. So we'll, we'll credit Noah with being able to confirm my opinion. Um, one other thing that I really love about the movie is getting to watch filmmakers in real time elevate. Um, We just talked on this show about Greta Gerwig going from the big first film to the next film. The Safties have been on this journey for the last, I don't know, 10, 12 years, and they're finding bigger and bigger canvases to paint on, and they're making better and better movies. And this is my favorite part of doing this podcast, of being obsessed with movies, of getting invested in the careers of the people who make them. If you look at their films, it's not just good time that, spring-loaded them into this experience. It's it's heaven knows what before that, and it's it's Lenny Cook before that, and it's Daddy Longlegs before that, and the pleasure of being robbed. I would encourage you, if you have not seen these movies, to seek them out because it's the it's the makings of a of a couple of really what I think will be a couple of really important people, and it's it's nice to see the movie getting attention this way. The last and final thing, if you have not seen the movie, I would encourage you to not listen to this. But um, the ending, this is a movie that. In maybe in stark contrast to some of that little women conversation that Amanda and I had, is unafraid to compromise. And when when Howard Ratner at the end of the movie catches a bullet and 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 his life is over, you realize that even though it's upsetting and we love Adam Sandler and we don't want to see Adam Sandler killed on screen and we want Howard to win, and even though he has just won this incredible victory with this triple parlay bet, he has to die. He has to suffer. He has to um He has to atone for the sins that he's committed throughout the movie. There is a morality to this movie that is really meaningful. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a cliche to call something like this Shakespearean or like a Greek tragedy, but it it really does ultimately aspire to those heights. And, um, I was moved by it and I loved it. And it it has actually paid off a couple more times I've seen it. Uh, so if you haven't seen Uncut Gems, I, I'm sorry to have spoiled it for you, but if you have, I hope you enjoy this conversation that I'm about to have with Josh and Benny Safdie. Let's take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. Today's episode of The Big Picture is brought to you by Masterclass. Masterclass lets you learn from the best with exclusive access to online classes taught by masters of their craft. You can learn how to make films by watching Martin Scorsese do it, or learn how to play poker by watching the great Phil Ivey explain hand play. With over 60 different instructors across tons of categories, there is literally something for everyone. The Masterclass app is accessible on your phone, web, or Apple TV, and 
each class is broken out into individual video lessons and downloadable materials, which you can explore at your own pace. As I mentioned, I really admire Phil Ivey, and it's been very exciting to be able to learn how to play poker just a little bit better by watching him explain the tricks of the trade. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass, and as a listener, you get 15% off the annual all-access pass. So just go to masterclass.com slash big picture. That's masterclass.com slash big picture for 15% off masterclass. Delighted to be rejoined by Josh and Benny Safdie. Guys, thanks for coming back. Of course. Oh, thank you. So Uncut Gems is here. Now, last time you were here on the show, you <laughs> teased the movie. Like maybe I did more than teasing. You revealed yeah. maybe a little too much. Yes. In people, hindsight, people have actually showed that, like pointed out. In hindsight, I'm like, wow, I can't believe I did that. You know what it was is when you spend 10 years working on a project, you kind of you kind of get stuck in this kind of hustle. And I think that and I was, you know, sitting with you. We were talking basketball. We were talking genre. We were talking film. And I think what I think my mind just went into like, like you know, the 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 wires just connected. I was like, just say, just tell him the entire movie, forgetting that I was recording. <laughs> Thank God I didn't spoil too many things. There are still a lot of surprises, but yeah. maybe you guys can walk me through basically what has it been two plus years since I last saw you in this capacity, mm-hmm. and some things changed. Mm-hmm. Um, Adam was not on board at the time. No, he wasn't. Kevin Garnett was not on board at the time. No. What? Who was? Was Joel Embiid on board at the time? I, I don't remember. I think you were talking Amari. Still, still Amari. Amari yeah. yeah. Actually, I do remember because we did a. Um, I think we did a. Did we do a table read? And uh, was that while we were out was here? Sasha Baron Cohen. Was that what it was? You had mentioned that okay, to me yeah. after. So the that's day. probably yeah. what we were. We were out here for. No, it wasn't while we were out here. No, I don't remember, but it was. You know, there was a lot of iterations of the movie. You know, we went to. We went and we started writing the the movie in 2009. Uh, had the first draft that we started working on, me, Benny, and Ronnie, uh, 2010. Ben, how old are you? At the, are you like in your early 20s at <laughs> yeah. this time? Yeah, was, <laughs> our first movie, Benny and our first movie, I was 24, he was 22. Yeah, it's funny because I'll always say, be like, oh yeah, when we were young, it's like, you're still young. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah it's ridiculous. We were really <laughs> hustling. Uh, but um uh, yeah, and we went to, we always wanted it to be Sandler. And we went to Sandler in 20, I think 12-ish, uh, 2011 probably. I got to get the actual email. I'm going to find it. And it was a pass. It was just like, who the hell? And also like, who the hell did we think we were? We can get Adam Sandler. I mean, what did you, you done Daddy Longlegs yes, at this point? The yeah. irony is that's one of Sandler's favorite movies of ours. It was just so like, but it, we just, we couldn't. We it, had, were. it had a long life. Daddy Longlegs had a strange life because it, it was Born in the like it had another name and then we switched the name mm-hmm. and then it like then it got nominated for a Spirit Award. So it it Well it premiered at like the height of the recession yeah. in Cannes. Right. And then uh and then it went and it went back and played in Sundance under a new title. That's right. And then so that was like six months later. We were told American distribution the IFC was Nobody's like, gonna watch movie. this movie if it's called Go Get Some Rosemary. Like, so we're like, all right. Not gonna happen. So we were and I actually prefer the title Daddy Long Legs yeah. anyway. Uh either way, it was a long but so we thought maybe we can kind of spin whatever. Well, we were success. like, like you, had, you had the perception we had a of moment. momentum, exactly. Yeah. Well, because exactly. like we we like Ronnie won. Ronnie, I remember Ronnie won a Gotham Award yeah. against Jennifer Lawrence and Ron Bronson. Ron, Ron Bronson, yeah, he was the lead actor of Daddy Long Legs, and he was up against uh, Jennifer Lawrence for Breakthrough Actor at the Gotham Awards. Crazy, and it was a joke to us. We were just like, you don't even well, let's not even go. And uh, Josh and had his camera I ready. Brought to a take camera, a picture. I brought a camera, 35 millimeter camera, and I had this whole plan. It was going to be a great gift from my buddy Ronnie. <laughs> I was going to take a picture of him the moment they announced Jennifer Lawrence's name, and it was going to be called Loser, and I was going to frame it big. <laughs> so I snapped the picture of 
Ronnie at the moment they announced the winner, but they said his name. Unreal. And the, the look on his face is unbelievable. It's a great photo. Isn't it it's still photo. your photo, yes. It's a photo. Well, because you and I somehow, like, you helped my fo- update my phone once. Now I got all your contact photos, so I lost that. Anyway, uh, the uh, anyway, so he won, like, surprise. He surprisingly won that award. And then we got nominated. We won the Cassavetes Award for it a year later. So this movie, like, and we just tried to take, like, the main character in Gems, we just tried to take any modicum of success, be it critical, because certainly it wasn't financial, but uh, and and kind of parlay it on itself to try to kind of see something bigger through. And Gems was always that big thing that we wanted to see through this movie that, um, you know, that we... We knew was a big film, and we couldn't. It couldn't have been skimped on. It was. We also I needed. Remember, it needed a movie star in that main role. You know, there was. I remember, like when I had my the the previous movie that I made, which was like an accident. It, so I was like, I didn't even really know. Now you got to go and show it, and it was this <laughs> thing that wasn't even supposed to be a feature film. Uh, and I remember getting all these e- emails and stuff from like agencies and stuff. And I was like, what is this garbage? L- leave me alone. And I never responded to any of it. And, uh, and then the same thing happened with Daddy is, but then we're like, oh, in order to make this movie gems, we actually have to, you know, play ball a little bit and get involved in, in, the, in these type of things. And we, uh, yeah, we got an agent and, and then we tried to kind of set up this movie because it had, a lot of genre elements into it and had, it was a diamond district world. So it was expensive. Just the props were expensive. And yeah, so we, and we thought, you know, we had this kind of crazy character who was dreaming big, who, you know, uh, was in these absurd scenarios. And we knew the only person who could really ground that was Sandler. So Mm -hmm. we went out to Sandler first person and we got that pass. And again, I don't think we had deserved the right to even ask Adam Sandler in 2011 to be in our movie. So we got the pass from his team. And then that sent us into a, all right, well, that's not going to work. It's like Ed Wood in, in uh, the movie Ed Wood, where it's like, well, if you don't like that, I got, you know, maybe you like the next one. Well, yeah, <laughs> and, it's, and it's like, it's you, you the, we would follow our interests. Like, okay, we can't make jams. Well, we were interested, like basketball was a part of that. Somebody approached us with all these tapes. From 2001 about a basketball player named Lenny Cook. And it's like, okay, let's just do that. We'll make a documentary about Lenny well, Cook. Well, it was also a job. Of course, yeah. yeah. We needed something to do. And we're like, oh, it'll take six months. Like four years later, we're still editing and filming with him. But I, Yeah, I mean, that, that 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 job, I remember like negotiating our contract with the producer of Lenny Cook. It's like, all right, well, we can pay our rent. We can get this. And then like you that that our fee ended up stretching over three oh years. God, it was like we get 20 cents an stuff. hour or something. Yeah. <laughs> like but that's the thing cents. is I can't picture gems without it being in the arc of Lenny heaven and then heaven of course and, and then good, good time yeah, yeah. like the, me neither they're, they're part of a, a yeah. an arc in my mind for sure and then Black Balloon is done and slipped mm-hmm. in there too we made this short film Black Balloon Andy Spade hit us up in the middle of the night and he's like and hey. John's gone we have you know and and he's like hey you know the red balloon let's make the black balloon and then we took that sentence and won and mm-hmm. it was like alright let's now try to take that and let <laughs> go to a different actor and we ended up uh, re- tr- constantly trying to reshift the movie to just make it makeable and uh, or feasible. So we were down the line with Harvey Keitel for a while. We wrote up the character. He was more I mean, aged up, aged, aged up. up, sorry, uh, aged up the character. And he was more akin to the initial inspiration, mm-hmm. which was this person who our dad worked for in the Diamond District. Uh, and then we and Lenny Cook happened. And then and then I was deep in the Diamond District doing research. And I met this young woman who had a transient job there. And I didn't know she was a street kid at all at the time. And I ended up getting totally enveloped in her world and the toxic romance of of both her, her boyfriend and also her drug addiction. Mm-hmm. And then that kind of played into parts of the movie of Gems that that then gets written out in a weird way. Uh, and then we ended, I remember after Heaven Knows What, we did a page one rewrite where we basically like 
not we didn't throw the entire script in the garbage. We but focused we, it on Howard because the first version was kind we, of and we and we took all these new yeah ideas of research from the modern day. But world. it was like the first version was more ep- like episodic, where it had a lot of other characters that you could follow in and out of the world. And this was just like, this is Howard's movie, so let's make it about him. And I remember there was one moment uh, in this in the movie uh, when you see there's a moment that takes place and that's kind of a pinnacle moment with the with that involves a vestibule. And uh, I remember coming up with that idea in this McDonald's. Uh, in in Brooklyn with Ronnie, uh, and and just being like, okay, that now we have this new version of the movie. Let's go out and try to make this. And then that's when we went down the line pretty heavily with Sasha Baron Cohen, and uh, we were doing table reads. And I remember at one point we did this bizarro, uh, bizarro version of Gems. We did a table read. Was it? Wasn't it? it was here. It we, was, did it. we did Sunset it. Sunset yeah, yeah. Wow, we did it at Sunset Cars. We did it right here. Crazy. No in the same studio. It was with Sasha, who was again. He's amazing, and we're huge fans of his. Um, who else was there? It was John David Washington, uh, who we were really into. For Keith's part? Yeah, he was actually, J- JD was playing a handful of characters, but he ended up, he was mo- the Damani role. ASAP Ferg. ASAP Ferg was there, uh, and he was, there's a character named Privilege, which ended up becoming the weekend role. Uh, uh, Amari, Tom, Amari Tom, came through. Tom, Tom Sizemore. Sizemore was kind of the Bogosian role, but Tom was... Tom was a lot during the table read because he would, improv- he would improvise. <laughs> he would improvise Literally. during the table read and start acting with J.D. Because Washington next to him. He's sitting next to him, but, but he's not, not in the scene. He's not actually, it's like, he's not in the scene, but he was like, it It became 3D. It's like, oh, you're in the scene because you're sitting next to me. So like, yeah, you remember that? Like, he would just work so, him into it. So this is after Good Time. This is 17? This was after Heaven Knows What. Yes, before, before Good, Good Time. time. Oh, so okay. we were out here and that's actually when we after met every, with Rob for the first on. time. After every movie that we finished, we're like, okay, let's, Roll whatever gems. success or anything and try and make gems. Yeah, because I know? remember Rob hitting me up because he saw the trailer for Heaven Knows What. And he's like, whatever you're doing next, I want to be a part of it. And I was like, well, we're trying to do this trying to do this movie we've been chasing for now. I think at that point it was five years. Uh, and you're not right for any of the roles. I'm sorry. And he's like, well, let's meet up in L.A. when you're I was like, actually, we'll be there because we're doing a, a reading for for gems. And it was it was basically like a reading for Sasha to kind of hear the mm-hmm. and I, we had never done anything like that before. And it was I read all the the direction and and Benny was a character in the movie yeah, at the time. Benny's character in Good Time. That's a big thing. Yeah, they, uh, my character in Good Time was actually in a version of Gems, and for a long time. And were you trying to make a, an expanded universe? Well, Sassy's universe. Yeah, so, well, what happened was, is it was it was the same guy. It was he had a, he had a similar disability, but Howard kind of took him in after his mother died. So he played like this kind of father figure to him. And when he, when we didn't make gems, it's like, oh, well, what do we do with this character? Because hmm. there's something Ronnie and I had worked on a lot before that for another movie. And then we put the character, you the developed, character. Yeah. And then we, then we're like, okay, then he was in gems. And then when gems wasn't happening, we're like, oh, we have this amazing character. We have to use him somewhere. And then he found his way into good time. And then when he's in good time, of course, he doesn't need to be in gems anymore. So a lot of his character actually ended up in Julia's yeah, character. Weirdly enough. So, yeah. Huh. But Julie's character. So, so I want to round out the yeah. rest of the table because it was, <laughs> was fascinating to think. About. I actually found a picture of it recently. It was Sasha. It was Joey Ferrara. Oh yeah. Turtle. Yeah. Um, it was um, legendary Knicks fan. Um, yes, legendary. Uh, ASAP Ferg, Isla Fisher, um, JD Washington, Amari, Tom Sizemore. Uh, I was reading Benny. And um, I feel like there was like, someone else that I'm forgetting. Oh, Riley Keogh. Yes, Riley Keogh was was reading Julia's part. Oh wow! Yeah, was and, Isla Fisher Idina's part? Correct. Okay. Yeah, okay. and uh, and it was it was interesting. It was a very it was the first time we'd ever done anything like that. So it was very helpful for us. Um, and and Sasha, when we were going to go down the road with Sasha, we were going to do 
create like kind of like a not Borat, but like a what is the realistic version of a Borat and how does he live in the Diamond District as a jeweler? Uh, and he had a voice that he kind of cre- sculpted. Anyway, so we went down the road and then Scorsese saw Scorsese and Emma Koskoff, Tillinger Koskoff saw Heaven Knows What and responded to it and loved it. And they wanted to know what we were working on next. We sent them the gem script and then they attached themselves. And then that broadened our profile big time, the project. And that was very helpful. Uh, and, and, um, then at some point, Jonah, after that, I think Jonah got interested. Jonah. Yeah, exactly. Jonah was interested and we were like, oh, this could be great to work with a contemporary a peer, and like we can, and he's an event, one of the great actors and, and, uh, really get deep. But then we had a really hard time figuring out a way to write the character younger. Uh, and we kept trying to like stick with these concepts that were to us so central to the movie uh and then it just so happened that then jonah got very interested in directing and then he he made his film uh and then the timing just didn't work anymore and we were left back and and i think around actually 20 before we went to sasha we went back to sandler around 2014 trying Mm -hmm. to use the any notice like any notice that we received on heaven knows what to try to go back to sandler we got it i remember we got a He's unavailable during the dates that you want. And we're like, oh, well, we'll push the dates. Yeah, They're like, no, 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 he's just unavailable. And we're like, oh, okay, we got you. Sorry, he's not. He's, That's again. an improvement from hard no. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, well, the first time, I don't even think we even heard like a no. I think it's just ignored. It was just. It like, was, but yeah. Sandy, his manager, remembers that first draft. And he actually remembers it. Like he remembers parts of it. He's And uh, that's cool that he remembers ignoring us. <laughs> so I, I feel like Sandler wouldn't have worked in 2012 the same way Jonah wouldn't have worked because mm-hmm. he's too young. He didn't Sandler yeah. in 2014. You got him at the right age. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned that um, you guys have some familial experience with the Diamond District. Why set a movie in this world? What was it about it that you wanted to put on screen? It's 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 a, um, it's a you know, 47th Street. Over the years, the 10 years, I would constantly well, well, our like dad, remind our, myself. Our dad did work there when we were younger as like a runner and a, and a sales a sales. What does, that, what does that mean? He a would, runner? Yeah, uh, it's would, funny. We're actually take, releasing a zine with A24 that is documenting all the stories. He would go from so like you'll be the able main, to read about he them. would go from the main base on 47th to other jewelers in the tri-state area trying to sell them gold and jewelry and like well, make commission. The, so what started actually with, you know, you took the subway out to like <laughs> East New York and, and, uh, you know, like tough places, especially in the late eighties, early nineties. And then he needed a car. So, uh, the guy who he worked for was also named Howard. They ended up, he's like, all right, we'll, we'll get you a car. Cause yes, you're right. We can do more business if you can travel farther. And, uh, he would show up with, you know, the catalog and actual jewelry. And then he would give to these local jewelers stuff on consignment. Sometimes they buy stuff outright. And, uh, yeah, there was this car that would, uh, there was this whole thing in the first version of the script where, you know, there's a method to robbing, uh, runners and sales salesmen. You, you poke their tire when they go into a jewelry store, let's say in like East Brunswick. Right. And then you get the, the salesman gets back in the car, they're driving, they don't, and then the car, it's called a slow leak. So the car slowly lets out of air. And then when you pull over to change the tire, you're like on the turnpike and they <laughs> come out and jack you and, you know, whatever, beat the shit out of you. Uh, so that type that was like the initial spark of the movie. Well, there were these like kind of tied to like these amazing pulp stories that existed only in that block and from how that block does business. So it's like, oh, this is an amazing world. Let's try and make something there. And it was tied to yeah, trying to be sentimental about like what was well, it was, around. While it was we also were, like the the barbaricism, yeah. uh, the 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 ancient quality. It felt like the Middle Ages on on the block. There you have, uh, you know, all these people and like the, there's like this strange spiritualism 
deeply embedded in this heightened consumerist materialist world of people running around and and kind of hawking and and selling like they're all selling the same mm-hmm. merchandise more or less but every once in a while something new will come in and everyone has to look at it almost religiously so and and it, it was you know when i started doing my research there the the energy is infectious and that was the thing that co- every once in a while when we would be in a lull with a production or something like that they were working on i would go to 47th street and just walk the block and every time the energy was 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 like a drug, and I would be I would send a text to mm-hmm. to Benny and Ronnie and Seba. Just say like it's it's still there, it's still there, and 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 yeah, it's it is, and I wonder how long it will st- will be remain there. So I have a little bit of experience in that part of the world, and what you put in the movie is very familiar to me. But how much are you talking about how to make it legible versus we're going to thrust you into a world and it should be confusing and disorienting because mm-hmm. you know the the story and the camera is basically sitting on Howard's shoulder the mm-hmm. whole time and you're thrust into situations and people are having conversations that might not be legible to somebody who's never lived in New York or certainly not visited that part of New York. So is that, are you like, this just has to be authentic or we have to explain a little bit to get the, the viewer comfortable? I think the only time we went out of our way to explain ex- was, was, was the, some of the betting yeah. stuff. Like we literally characters were invented to explain the betting line. I, I always find, I, 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 we had a teacher once at uh, what said like um, every movie that. should um, serve a function on some level. I was like, "What do you mean by this?" Like, it should it should be pragmatic in the sense that you could put it on to learn something. So, like, learn how to make put have someone make a fire in your movie, so that someone can learn how to make a fire. They can you, they can excerpt take that excerpt was and it, learn how. To, was the so, Godfather with the meatball like the meat sauce? Mm, Isn't that one of yeah, them? Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, that's Coppola's family yes. recipe. Yeah. So there's a lot of. We tried, you know, so that you extend that to like the general idea of just showing a world and, and you, you know, like you want people to, you know, I often learn more through fiction than I do do through nonfiction and that you want to kind of, you, you want the movie to, to be a keyhole into a world. So if, if you're stopping and just explaining or describing things at any moment, it's just not how life unfolds. Yeah. And also I think by... There are certain things that we know, okay, you may not catch that, but you'll catch enough to be able to move forward. You right. know, it's and it's more important to get the authentic nature of who these people are because that will be so much more, I guess, valuable to a viewer through the experience of the film because you're feeling these people as real people. Well, and if you don't necessarily catch every bit of what's going on, you're still invested in the overall. Movies emotions. are the closest things we have to time travel and to teleportation. And like, that's what you want a movie to do. You want a movie to take you to a place that you've never been before. And I mean, it sounds cheesy, but that's just the reality of it. You know, that's why like, uh, I'm, we're, we're excited about the prospect of even doing something like a proper, this 2012 is a period piece, yeah, but, but doing like a period period is like, you can actually bring people, transport people. You can people make people, th- yeah, make people think that this is a real like thing that they're getting access to. But it's also, a lot of it is like, okay, so then you have somebody like Sandler who is a personality how do you get him to disappear, you know, as Howard? And I think, yeah, he put in the time and put in the work to just kind of become somebody new that when you're watching it, you have the emotions of what Sandler brings out of you, but you're watching a new person. And I think that's that's huge. What about Kevin Garnett? Oh, man. So he was not 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 involved last we spoke. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, he's the, perfect. Yeah, he's amazing. He's amazing. Perfect. amazing. The Garnett side of things from a writing perspective, when I think back on it, I'm like, I can't believe I endured that. 
you know, the, the Garnett plays a character in the movie that's central to the plot and to the themes of the mm-hmm. film. And, you know, when we originally wrote it, it was Amari Stoudemire. Amari Stoudemire is, you know, amongst basketball fans, almost famous, famously eccentric and, and um, you know, is also, you know, famously a black Jewish person. And the themes of the movie worked really well with this Ethiopian Jewish tribe finding this black opal and it arriving in New York from them. So the, you know, you could imagine, and also the New York of it all, like Amari is like this person, this almost like a gem of his own came to the city and is resurrecting this dead franchise. And, and, and it, it felt hard just to hear you say that. Oh, it was, <laughs> I know it was going back for a moment when we were making the movie, it almost was like 2012. We were about to hit that 54 win season. But yeah. We didn't, uh, but, we, but we're, but then I was reminded that we were a lottery team. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the the forevermore. No, yeah. But so when you write Amari Sadamar, you know, we got to know him. We actually, when it was Harvey Kazel, we set up a Shabbat dinner at Amari's house with Harvey's family and Amari's family. And I remember bringing, because I wow. knew at that point I had read as much as I could and watched as many interviews above the rim, with, yeah. with uh, Amari. So I was like, you know, I'm going to bring him a gift for Shabbat. I'm going to bring him above the rim because he loves Tupac and he loves basketball. He, this has got to be a, 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 a staple. I almost felt like, uh, um, I almost felt like Taxi Driver, like the you know bringing the Chris Christopherson record because like <laughs> of course he probably has this, but he didn't have it. So <laughs> I was like, oh my god, I'm the one who's going to give him above the rim. Stars a basketball, a former basketball player, Dwayne yeah. Martin is, yeah. and Leon, who supposedly notoriously had a studio apartment in the Garden. <laughs> um, is that true? That, that's they a, said he that's lives there. The they garden. say he lives there. Anyway, I, I wow. love that movie, and, and Tupac turns in a great performance. Amazing, uh, and and uh, this is a great Warren G. Uh, <sighs> <laughs> yeah, I think we've seen that movie like a hundred. Yeah, I love yeah. that's a good rewatch. Yes, it is. It, it is. Uh, it is. We, the, uh, the the but but so you know I had known Amari's personality pretty well, so I was able to write it, uh, which is you know, you can so you're writing the movie around this person with this who has unique motivations and concerns, and then along the way, you know. For financial reasons, people are trying to push you. It's like 2015. You're like, let's go for Kobe. Kobe wants to act. Everyone heard Kobe mm-hmm. wanted to act. So I, the agency said, you know, write it for Kobe. Let's send it to him. You got a shot here. So I'm, I take the time to rewrite the whole script with Kobe Bryant, which is difficult because this movie has to center around real games in uh, the way they actually unfolded. And you have to write the persona of the player. And, and which is tough. So I have to like get into Kobe and what does it mean? What y- can we find East Coast games that even make sense that he's in New York and would come by a jewelry store? And we ended up centering it, that version around the 60 point game he did at the garden. Okay. And that was like, you know, and the, the gem was kind of a youth elixir and Howard, you know, is kind of a guy past his prime. So it kind of makes sense as well, there as well. Finally, the agency's like, where is it? He wants it. I was like, dude, it takes me time to rewrite this whole script and come up with a whole new set of themes. And uh, then I was like, give me another couple of days. So finally, I'm like about to send it. They're like, oh, we'd actually just heard from Kobe's team. He doesn't want to act. He actually wants to direct. It's like, thanks a lot. Fuck you. I would actually spend a lot of time writing this. Jesus. So then we went back to the drawing board and we ended up trying. We went back to Amari for a little went bit. Went back to yeah. Amari for a minute. And then we were like, you know what? Let's not make a period piece. Let's make this contemporary. And we looked at players and we thought who worked with the Ideas movie and we landed on Joel Embiid. And Joel was attached for a while, actually. He was attached up until four months before production. And I got close to Joel, which was awesome. And I became kind of a 
default, like a de facto uh, Sixers fan, which was exciting because I was like, wow, this is a, a great team. team. Uh, I remember they invited us to a Sixers game in Philly. And we sat next to the mayor of Philadelphia, <laughs> who, by the way, during timeouts was zooming in on press shots from a photo, photo shoot earlier in the day that he did with Sylvester Stallone on the <laughs> Stallone. <laughs> and it was like, this is unbelievable. I'm next to the Philadelphia mayor at the at six. I think it was a Sixers Cavs game, actually. And it was an incredible. I remember Rich Paul was sitting like I, two seats well, from us. And I and LeBron came up to Rich Paul. I didn't know who he was. And I was like, oh, my God, you know LeBron? And he's like, no, nah, I don't know him. He just talks to the fans. And then someone mentioned that we made Lenny Cook. And he's he's like, you guys did Lenny Cook. And all of a sudden, he's like, oh, my name is Rich I remember I took, I took my phone out to, like, test the slow motion video on it. And I was like, oh, Le- LeBron's coming down. So I did it. And it was, like, the most insane dunk from, like, Almost the free throw line. Just like soared through. I was like, oh, my God. I cannot believe I got that from courtside. Anyway, that was like an incredible privilege and honor. Jenny, though, his manager is Jenny Sachs, who's in the movie. She Mm -hmm. plays Kevin's manager in the film. She's Joelle's manager. And she was amazing. She is a cinephile. She watches a lot of movies. Like a lot. Uh, you know, and and grew up watching. She has a background in psychiatry, and 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 she worked in, um, you know, I think she worked at like needle exchanges in Rochester. So that heaven knows she had seen heaven knows what, which was so bizarre for wow. someone from the sports world to see that movie. So it was it was perfect. Everything was kind of sync, syncing up nicely, and the themes of the movie worked really well. You have this this gemstone taken from Africa, brought to America, uh, uh, and and you have a player, an African player who can actually see this we can work with the idea of reclamation and that and it worked and Joel is obviously he was known for his trolling sense of humor and the movie we pushed the comedic themes of the movie some Scott Rudin was constantly pushing us to add jokes anyway uh so it, everything was working and then the schedule pushed into the season all of a sudden we don't have a player anymore because we can't shoot during the act during with an active player and then we have to look at go back to the drawing board and look at recently retired players and that's when we saw Kevin Garnett's name on that list. And Garnett, as a Knicks fan, instinctively, I hated him. So I was like, no way, Kevin Garnett. I fucking hate him. When it's, yeah, and it's it's also, it's like his games are so much more, like, well-rounded. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't have, like, a 60-point game, but a rebound is just as important. So it's like that actually then makes it, as, as a basketball fan, it becomes more interesting because then you can kind of spread the bet out through the whole— But right? it yeah. amplifies the gambling. Exactly. Sure. Yeah, yeah. But I was actually—I was—it was shame on me because— I was actually blinded. My the sports fan in me was actually prohibiting us uh, good the, decision, the, yeah. the the part of my brain that can actually deduce if someone's a good actor or not. Because I hated Kevin Garnett because of his perf- performative self. I hated him because he was a heel in the NBA, and that he actually every night knew Destroyed how to it, how yeah. to how to play to twenty thousand people. He saw it as theater almost. All of his Craig Sager interviews. Those are the things you kind of. So then we took the we took the phone meeting with him, and I was honest. Second I met him, I was like, I hate your guts on the phone, and he loved that. And he's like, you're a Knicks fan, Benny's like, how much did tomorrow have time on the clock? Yeah, like, Tell me. On, he's like, come on. He's like, guys, guys was, nine years ago in a regular season you guys, game. You guys are talking about a game from 2012. It's 2019. He's like, 2018, he's, he's like, you guys, look. He's like, he was like a therapist. There. This like, is the three pointer that yes, that, that should have counted. counted. We actually if, asked if the they had modern technology that would have asked Doc. We asked Doc Rivers, who's who lends his voice to the movie at one point. He, we said so. We asked him the same question. Did Amari have time on the clock? He goes, he didn't, but he should. But he should have. And yeah. We're like, and, and we Benny and I believe that if Amari did hit that shot, the, game changer. The Knicks entire franchise could be different because that would have been the ninth game in a in a in, in a run. Ninth, it would have been the ninth game. Uh, 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 um, 
in a row, then which would probably led to a 10-game winning streak, which would have cemented Amari kind before of the as trade the frontrunner for the MVP. For the trade, no mellow trade. It's whatever. We can go down that path. Anthony's anyway. still in the Knicks. But we ended yeah. up getting into it with, with KG, and, and then we met with him in person. And, and what we noticed with him in person was that, which, which were the signs of a great actor, is that he had this ability to, to walk you through a story. He had this unbelievable talent in storytelling to give shape to a story and feel the ebbs and flow of the room. And that was when I was like, oh, this guy will be a natural. Yeah, and it's also just like when you meet with anybody who hasn't ever acted before, you have to read their personality. Like, do they have something that can translate into the movie in an interesting way in general? And we met with some players who were great, and you could kind of see how maybe they would get it on a, an intellectual level or just like, like understanding. But Kevin not only got it on that level, but he had this intense passion about everything. And that's where like, okay, this is going to be next level. Because Howard is a passionate yeah. guy. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I remember we spoke to Kevin. It's like, well, what is it about the stone that would make you excited? And he said, I could get behind the superstition of needing something to win. And it was like, it's perfect. Yeah, he know? told us this incredible stories. You know, a big, a big part of, you know, working with an actor is you, get to know them on a personal Mm -hmm. level. And, you know, it's almost becomes, you know, like you both have to feel comfortable to share things about your private lives and, and, uh, you become friends, you know, and, and, uh, he shared some stories from his youth that were very touching and, and some of them heartbreaking. And they ended up all being very helpful in getting him to explore this character and, 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 uh, and also, explore feeling comfortable with one another mm-hmm. on set he called me coach once uh, but yeah we and i said what do you mean coach he's like yeah you're the coach the script is the playbook and yes. and and i'm I just mean, executing the plays and the other time he's like who's this he's like who's this guy with the boom who's like giving me like these great tips on acting i was like, it's like yeah, that's, that's, me. Like, that's the other he's director like, yeah, defensive, yeah, defensive yeah, assistant yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah but we had to rewrite the whole script just for kevin and that became something that acted I mean, there was over 160 drafts of this script Jesus. Yeah. I mean, over 160 well, Because every too. time you cast somebody new, you kind of have to revisit it to kind of give it life again. So, Are you guys gamblers? Josh is more of a gambler than I am. I, I, I like to view it. Like there was actually, it's a funny story. When we were promoting Daddy Long Legs, we did this, like we self-invented tour along the, the Route 1. Mm-hmm. We tried to convince IFC to pay for it. And they're like, but, well, pay for your rental so car. So we got like a one-way rental car. Down and we decided, okay, we'll buy a tent. And Josh wrote Holiday Inn on the tent, and we would pitch the tent in these campgrounds, and then we would go to the uh, casinos along the way. And there was one casino in particular, which it was just it was it was a sad day. Josh was losing a ton of money, and it was just like ton of money. It was was every money, all the dollars I had. Yeah, but it was Commerce Casino. Uh, it was, where was it? It was, it was, it was out in, in between Portland I don't remember any of the names of them. I just remember what we would do is we would pitch the tent and Go. I would immediately look for the and, closest casino. And we would actually keep an eye on it while we're driving. But so we're at this one place and Josh wins, a, like he wins a good hand. And I'm like, all right, we're done. I take the chips. I put them in my pocket. I said, I'm going to the bathroom. I'll meet you outside. He's like, okay, great. Yeah, amazing. We won. So I go to the bathroom and I come back and I just see now Josh is on the opposite side of the casino, sitting at a table, nodding his head. <laughs> and I come over and the only thing I hear is, okay, and you just lost. And so the woman takes the chips from me and goes, okay, I understand how to play now. Um, let's do it one more time. And he starts betting all this more money. I'm like, no, no, no. It's like, and he lost it all. Shades of Howard. Yes. In that moment. Well, I mean, I okay, are we gamblers? I mean, there's there's a oh, yeah, part of the, uh, the whole, making this movie making, was a gamble. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it really was. I mean, the the there's a part in the there's a scene in the movie where Howard shows up at an auction house and. Uh, you know, it's everything he's been working towards is in is uh, it, it's in the coming scenes. And you know, he walks up, and I can I can only 
I, the scene is very personal for me, even though no one would ever think that, you know, you, you're a filmmaker, you, you, you work and you work and you work and you work on something and you see the value in it. And you have to, you're constantly trying to convince people of that value, either on a directorial sense with the actors and you're trying to, you know, come up with this emotional value, what have you, you know, you finish the product and it's there and it means everything. It's your world. You know what I mean? And you've, You've bet everything. You've bet the house mm-hmm. on it. If it doesn't work, it's you go screwed. into a corporate job. It's done. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and uh, you know, Howard shows up at this auction house and he sees the catalog, you know, like a filmmaker shows up at a film festival. And you see it and you're like, oh, my God, I'm in that. This is, You're excited. Then you flip it open and you're like, it's like 500 other movies and you're just like one page of this thing. And you realize like, oh, you're not special at all. You're actually – you're actually – there's – your your worth is nothing <laughs> and you know and your product is it totally going to be the value of it's going to be rest on random people uh and and that's you know that's a gamble it's a gamble yeah, that you it, take and it's also i guess yeah like each movie that we made if it had failed like you were saying we would not be able to make another movie so in a weird way yes it's like i say i'm not a gambler but yes of course i'm a gambler because well, i didn't even made, think about well, it when we made heaven knows what like our, we what was literally it? we couldn't we couldn't, for, you know, after Daddy Long Legs, it was a very small budgeted film, and then we tried to make something bigger, and then we made this documentary, and that was, you know, that that had an that was a very well widely seen mo- movie for us. It was on Showtime and ESPN. It was played a lot, uh, you know, and it was you you'd meet people, a mailman who said he cried watching that movie. Mm-hmm. That was awesome. But then when we went to go make this very hard movie to ma- get made, this movie that stars homeless homeless people, and and um, it was a high concept movie, a hybrid movie. It was very difficult to raise. So we basically made that for no money. Like the only people who got paid were the actors. And everyone on the crew was just like doing it because they maybe insane, liked our previous yeah. movie or what have you. And it was a very small crew. So, and we put, we we basically, we bet the house on yeah. that one. And that was really difficult. That movie could have blown up in our face every single day. And, uh, you know, and then Good Time, you know, we everyone told us we went around shopping that movie trying to get a, a certain budget for it. And uh, we were told everyone's like, no, 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 you can't make it. You, this is this is like a $12 million movie you can't do. And we're like, no, 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 we can do it uh, for, for basically 10% of the, the cost. And, uh, you know, two, I think the movie was like a $2 million movie or something. And But that was absurd. Yeah. You know, everyone who did line production of that movie was just like, there's no way you can make this. And they did the metrics, like, well, Rob Pattinson is this, that, and the other. And it was, uh, yeah, and we, and we, we made that movie. We it was really, really, really hard to make that movie. Like, like eighteen, nineteen hour days every single day. And if and if that one day, I think we did a tw- on a on a Friday. We just went. We did a we did a twenty two hour day. It was not at that point. You're literally just getting paid. Like you're just getting stuff done. You yeah. know, it's not. Nobody's operating on the right but frequency. We, but, but we knew that we if, needed to learn yeah. about genre. We needed and, to learn about pacing, and we and we believed in that movie. We believed in what it could have done for us, and and that was the movie that got us Sandler. Mm-hmm. You know, Sandler. We went. We're at Cannes with that movie, and he was there with Meyerowitz, and he, um, you know, I think he. We tried to get a meeting with him there. He's like, I'm with my family. Like, I'm promoting a movie. Let's like. I'm not going to do He's it. He's pure like that, yeah. Sandler. But you then know, he like, watched it when he got back and he immediately called us, like texted us. I'm like, it's, it's, who, Sandler? This is like, this can't actually, because I didn't know where it came from. Yeah. It came out of the blue. He said, your movie's fucking yeah. incredible. I said, who is this? He goes, Sandler. I said, which one? And he goes, <laughs> the famous one, because I knew a, a Richard Sandler. And then and then I said, oh, uh, uh, I know I know a famous Sandler uh, photographer. And he goes, the more famous one. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, yeah, and then, 
you know, he he um, read the script and and that was and then about a almost ten months later we were shooting the movie. So a year later, actually. Gems is not a, a mega budgeted movie, but it's I assume a lot more money than you guys have had yes. to make movies in yes. the past. Yes. Was that a good thing? Was that a bad thing to have more responsibility in that respect? Well, somebody asked us a long time ago about like um in Daddy Long Legs, there's a scene with a tornado and like a paper, paper tornado. And we did what we could. We have to explain what that means. A paper okay. trainer is like a I was I was I was getting there. So basically what happens is the kids are going to work with their dad. They make a bunch of photocopies. When they leave, the bags break and the wind takes it and make creates a paper tornado. We did what we could. And it was with a bunch we, of leaf with blowers. With a bunch of leaf blowers and like a thousand copies. And we were 10, excited. Copies. We, it wasn't ten thousand. It was really? it, it was not a lot actually. Okay. Sorry. And so then it, we were excited by it. And then somebody said, Oh, Hopefully you'll get a bigger budget to make your next movie. What does that mean for you? I'm like, oh, we'll make a bigger paper tornado. So it's like, that's kind of how we approached it. Except that was so naive of us because, you know, with with bigger budgets and things like that. It doesn't actually come. You know, like this was a, this was our first union movie, you know, and, and uh, which was great because the, you know, not to denigrate at all the week work before, but you have all, now you have access to this uh, talent pool that wouldn't previously work on your movies because they weren't. And and they, but it was big. It was yeah. a big crew. It was, the cap- you know, and there's and certain we had things. Union, re- you had union requirements of, of a certain amount of people. You had that had to be on set. I remember we were no 22 sh- hour days on a movie no. like that. You could do it. It just gets really, it doesn't make really, any really sense. expensive. Yeah. yeah, and and we did. I think we did, we did one, one 18 hour. Yeah, day. and that was like everybody I mean, was hours. I mean, but like people really believed in the movie, and I think that you know that's a testament. Darius Kanji helped build out the crew. Uh, you know, we were working with uh, a, a, everyone we met with was believed in it, which was great. Yeah, and I, but I, I remember with the first day, the second day, we were in the Diamond District doing our negative day two, whatever it's called. So it's not an official. It's like a, start. It was like a prep, a prep shoot. But you right? have like basically the full crew together. Uh, and I remember I had to do a, a wardrobe approval with Adina because we were shooting with her on Monday. And what happened? Oh, we walked. We walked uh, over. AD came. Amy came over to like forty fifth. Need to do an uh, an approval at the wardrobe trailer. And I was like, wardrobe trailer. Okay. So they're like, it's. I was like, where's like it's on Forty Fifth Street. I was like, okay. So I go to Forty Seventh. Walking down Sixth Avenue, and I immediately get into my head about what we have left to shoot. And I'm thinking about you know what I'm you know what I want to talk about with the actors. And then I make a right and sitting at 45th and my periphery just catches trailers. And I look down, I just see like street full of trailers going down blah, on Times Square. And I'm immediately thinking like, oh man, I wonder what they're filming. And and instinct and another instinct is like, this is going to fuck up our shoot. You know, like I hate film productions in New York. They're a nuisance. Uh, but, you know, then you're, but then you realize, you know, you, you walk and literally I saw one of like a PA is like, oh, hey, Josh, what are you looking for? I was like. Oh, uh, is this ours? They go, yeah, this is your, this is your film. This is our movie. And then I went and I saw the, uh, wardrobe trailer and Miyako's in there and she opens, she's like, we, we made it. It was a cool moment, but I, but it was, but it was a moment where I was like, oh, wow, this is a huge infrastructure. And, uh, you know, and 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 figuring out a ways to kind of usurp it. I never left the set ever I mean, again. Yeah, after that. I always stayed right where you I was figure out to. ways to like. To, it helps. In, there's certain things that you couldn't do before that you could do now, and it's like, oh, okay, we can. We can do that. You know, there was like the Chris Solano and Maceo, like what we could do with this team that Darius had set up was out of control for a camera. And it was like, okay, now it literally just opened our brains in, a, in an interesting way. So I think that this movie has an interesting blessing and curse duality. So I think that you guys could theoretically have what I would call a big fucking deal problem or gift. Mm-hmm. So to a lot of people, Adam Sandler is a big fucking deal. Mm-hmm. To a lot of people, Kevin Garnett is a big fucking deal. To a lot of people, Adina Menzel is a big fucking mm-hmm. deal. To fans of Atlanta, Lakeith Stanfield is a big fucking deal. Yeah. 
the weekend is a big fucking deal. For me, <laughs> Mike Francesa is a big fucking deal. <laughs> how, tell, tell me how he became involved in, in this. Mike movie. Francesa? Yes. Uh, I, I am a fan of his as well. I like, I like, <laughs> right, 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 right. I like his, I like his radio personality a lot. I, um, we had a quote of his up in the, our production office about like the guy on the LIE. Like, that's right, who he's doing yeah. it for. The guy who's yes. looking up to Tapping make sure what it, steering yes. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know for some, you know, when you make a movie about uh, the sports world and, and we started to, to devise this character, Gary, uh, a bookie. I just, for some reason, all I could see was, was, was his hair and his teeth and his, and, and I could hear his voice. That's all I could do. And, and I could just, and I just knew, you know, like Kevin, that he's a performative self and you just know he's going to be a natural. Then when we met with him, it turns out he was kind of jealous of, he was jealous of Mad Dog being the voice in Bad Lieutenant. Yeah. So oh. he was, so I think he wanted to, the you first, know, one of the first things he said, he's like, Mad Dog got this. I'm getting, he responded very, yeah. he responded immediately to our casting. Yeah. Jennifer Nettie reached out to him and I think Francie Mazur, they both, he was like the first person. He's like, he's interested. He wants to meet you. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, sick. Get to This is in a nice lineage with Bad Lieutenant too. Yes, this yes, sort of kind New of, York yeah, crime movie sure. that has a sports uh, storyline yeah, yeah, alongside of it. I, yeah. I heard that they actually shot a scene oh, with uh, Daryl. Like, or they tried to shoot a scene with Daryl Strawberry in Bad Lieutenant. Oh, interesting. And they couldn't figure out a way to like we couldn't do that with he this. He was not movie. in a good way at that we, time, Daryl. We we, yeah. we we couldn't actually shoot at a basketball game because then you know, we'd have to use to work within the NBA. Well, and it's and it's it, yeah, well, more challenging. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. But yeah, I mean I I I I was very excited when when Mike came on board because I just knew that those that we shot with him for only one day and it was a long day. But I remember just I I knew that day was going to be great. Well, I think we, the Yankees were playing, and I think Sandler and him just like you know because that's his. That's we met his, well. We know, we also met him at an Italian restaurant. He had he had all the plates. It was like it was very in the vibe of what we he were going up. for. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the Pope. Uh, I think that Dan LaPatton's music is mm-hmm. like. Definitely the eighth character of the movie. That's a cliche to say that, but in yeah. this case, is very much true. Part of like the pulsating feeling that you get while watching the movie. You you guys have worked with Dan before. Mm-hmm. Like, tell me about how you make a a score together. Oh man, I mean uh, the gems. Good time was was um, comparatively easy to mm-hmm. to do uh, because it was yeah the narrative was driving it. A lot it was ways, almost yeah. like. Uh, it was it was single minded that score. You know what I mean? It was just kind of like dun, dun, dun. it was all BPM based, and it was all you know. It was the pulse. It was kind of like uh, the the Klaus Schulz score to angst. You know what I mean? Actually, that had more nuance to it. But but um, it was we knew what it was all the time. And with gems, it was more mercurial and more kind of like there are a few pieces that we are in the good time wheelhouse, kind of more more. Uh, pulse driven and and kind of anxiety inducing uh but there were all there's a lot of cues uh that are very much inspired by new age music and trying to get at you know the inner dreams of howard ratner and which you know is is tough because how how he's a very complicated guy he wants everything but he also um wants more and 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 what does what does that kind of elegiac space sound like and and uh yeah, we we spend a lot of time on on uh, getting that you know score down and adding real elements. There's a lot of flutes in the movie. There's a lot of uh, saxophone. Saxophone. There's um you know saxophone is such a New York you know uh, brass instrument and and we use percu- we had incredible. Also we had we had great collaborators on this as well. Like Eli Kessler, incredible percussionist. 
Uh, we had uh, Gatekeeper did some stuff on the movie. Well, and it's, it's, it's funny because Dan was like – Wordless music. In his, in his – The choir stuff. Because a lot of the times with the score, you can just kind of have it. And then when the scenes come, the score goes down. And then it just plays underneath and it's just kind of like – Yeah, we don't believe in underscore. So, it's, so. so Dan is like so excited because <laughs> it's always there, you know, and it's like it's at the same level. Right. It's, it is an active part of yeah, the film. And, it's, yeah. and, and for, for him it was exciting because – we're not going to – we're going to find a way to make it all work together mm-hmm. as opposed to competing with one well, what's another. what's interesting is it's the same amount of score as Good Time, except Good Time is 35 minutes shorter. Mm-hmm. So it's 50 minutes, I think, 52 minutes of, of score and, and gems, and it's a 135-minute movie. So it's like – you know, it, it's strange because the music – is so euphoric at times and also so chaotic at other times. Uh, but it, it, it's, it's that, it's also a manic, it's, it's, yeah. it's that, it's that bipolar. It's era, mood. Era, it's, yeah. it's mood based it's, in a lot of ways. Whereas, and it's moody. Yeah. Yeah. It's going up and down. Yeah. And, and, um, but my cues, you know, like even just like, we also took, like I said earlier, took great inspiration from new age music mm-hmm. and the medicinal quality of music, how new age music was thought of. Like, Oh, you can listen to this to a, to erupt a chakra mm-hmm. or to calm yourself down. So we were using meditation bowls and choirs, which are normally accompanying a room with a big Buddha at the front of it, where everyone's trying to like enter some clean headspace. But it, we're tying it to guys being in a locked in a vestibule. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very different. There's a juxtaposition there, and uh, you know, we we used uh, 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 rec- recreated this thing called the space base, which was invented by this this woman Constance Demby, who designed it as a healing tool Mm -hmm. and it's supposed to like erupt your chakras and that's actually becomes the sound of the opal and and you know we we were very you know we were we were we were kind of obsessed with that you know dan we listened to that we listened to this music and then we would just like the first session with dan was let's go through all of his synthesizers moog was very participant in the movie they designed patches for us we would send like hey we need to sound like this and they would build it for us uh, but we went through all of his synthesizers and his Omnisphere, and we basically kept a library of sounds that evoked a certain feeling for us. And I would, you know, get into the Howard headspace and be like, oh, empty desire or yearning gamble. And, and uh, you and know, it's, it's actually the, the, the bipolar sco- disorder. Well, the in a weird the way. score in a weird way is actually you're, you're, it's tied to his emotions in a lot of ways. So it's like if he's feeling elated, the score will do so – it's, so it's like I guess yeah, you always say like Mickey Mousing is not a good thing where it's like boing, like the score will directly relate to an action in the movie. In this case, it's almost directly relating to an emotional state of being. Yeah, it yeah. is his pulse. Yeah. It's a, when it's up, it's up. And when exactly. It's, it's a little more exactly. exactly. So what a, the movie is kind of like – there's been a lot but of it's comes- cosmic too. The score is very oh, sure. cosmic, and the movie is cosmic. The music, the, the movie- bookended score, especially when yeah. you come in and when you go mm-hmm. out, has but like that the idea that quality. on some level, this movie, uh, the, uh, the the 2001 was a big inspiration mm-hmm. on this movie too. So it's like this idea that we, the universe is inside of all of us, that the cosmic element that like one person on one side of the same planet is in a microsecond worrying about a machine falling on his leg because of terrible working conditions and dying. On the same exact time, at the same exact time, on the other side of the same planet, you have a person who's worried about a basketball player hitting a free throw in that same microsecond, but that's also life or death. So it's like that scope of things, that micro macro is, you know, tied to, you know, this cosmic music. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, like the, the Carl Sagan show Cosmos, you know what I mean? These things are all very inspiring to going into the score. The movie has already earned a reputation as high anxiety, a panic attack. People are like, "This, I couldn't 
breathe while I was watching it. The thing that it reminded me of was like an Altman movie on cocaine. <laughs> There's just a lot of people talking over each other, under each other. The music is very present. There's obviously this heart-quickening feeling while you're watching it, but I feel like orchestrating that is really hard. Mm -hmm. There's very few filmmakers that are like, what we need to do is have three people talking at the same time. Well, that's confusing. Yeah, well, the thing is, is like you go, we go in knowing that that's going to be the case. You know, it's like, okay, the performance we believe would be heightened by the freedom that that would allow. That like, if we could just talk over one another, we don't have to worry about pausing and waiting for you to talk. So it just, it cre it breeds an interesting energy. So let's play with that. And we knew that we'd have to make it work later somehow. And I, I, we were confident that that was going to happen. And so it just, there were certain scenes where like, it was almost not possible, but it just, it breeds a life that reflects the characters in the film. You know, that there is this constant run of people talking business well, here, business there, you know? Form... Louis Sullivan said form follows function and it is so, I live by that. You know, when every time I would go back to the Diamond District, like I was saying earlier, I would get that bug. That bug came from the energy that comes from, you go into a jewelry store and there's literally three deals happening at the same time. Meanwhile, there's a food buffet that's out because it's, you know, this the Jewish holiday and everyone, and then you're drinking and you're drinking at three, two at noon. Mm -hmm. uh, so th that, that energy was part of it. So, recreating that, you know, and then trying to then f express yourself within that kind of created chaos is in a weird way is, is, uh, it's like, it's forcing you. Like I always, I don't, I don't watch a lot of football, but when I do watch, I can always, I always relate to the quarterback when they're surrounded by their pocket and they're in the pocket and they're looking to make that. And when pass. they can land, when they can be in there for a little bit, like, Oh my God, I can't believe they're holding all these people off. For this chaos. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. I really, I love that. And, and I actually find that I can perform best in that scenario because I, because I'm blinded by the self-conscious nature of it in a weird way. Anything was, that, anything that makes me forget about myself well, in the moment I'm, I'm into. It's actually funny. There was one, scene where we were doing it I guess everybody was tired it was right before lunch and I it was like kind of just like everybody was just going through the motions a little bit and I'm like something's off here like we need to like drop a bomb on this whole thing and then of course it like it, it, well, everything I, erupted I, I'll and say cool. that there's one scene I but, think have you uh, the, uh, the, have you I think at the the scene if you remember the scene at the, when he Kevin meets Kevin Garnett for the first time, there's mm -hmm. a sequence of scenes. In the script, it was this gargantuan sequence of scenes, uh, and it was a lot. It was like a lot of characters, a lot of extras mm -hmm. in a very small space, and it was that thing that's that's crazy in the diamond that anyone who's ever had to go through to buy a, an engagement ring was like, oh, I'll never forget that day. And we had to replicate that. And I think that there's, in particular, there's a scene between Sandler and Lakeith uh, where they're having a, quote, private conversation. Mm -hmm. And and I can't stand when this private- the watches. Yes. 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 Uh, I can't stand in in TV and movies when someone has a private conversation that's so clearly not private. I can't, it's a pet peeve. I can't stand it. Like, let's go over here. It's like, well, you're talking at full volume. And some movies even like make light of it. Even a Sandler movie did with Baumbach. They make light of it when he's, they're trying to get into the MoMA and they're like, they can hear you. She's right there. That's right. Um, so what we tried to do, and this is helpful for the same thing applies to, you know, putting marks down for actors. We don't do that stuff because we like, we don't want an actor to be kind of reminded that things are that that they they are doing something for something else. They're doing it only for themselves because that's how you are in life, unless there's some other motivation. So with that scene between Sandler and, and Lakeith, we encouraged all the extras to just speak freely and 
pretend as if, and there's a lot of stuff at to look full at volume. on our sets. At full volume. So they're all looking at the photographs of Sandler, the Photoshop photos of him with rappers, and looking at the actual jewelry. We had a lot of real jewelry on those showcases. So people are talking in full volume in a space that's pretty reverberant. So the conversation that they're having actually feels private. It feels like they can get away with having yeah. this one conversation. And also they're forced, if someone's screaming, they're, they're yeah, actually react, forced yeah. to actually raise the volume of their voice. And that adds an le- element of realism that, you know, I don't know, that, that, that makes that, that, that kind of shoots down this idea that you're creating something from nothing. You know what I mean? Yeah. I've always, since I was a kid, I used to tell the grown up stories and I would add so many details to the point where they're like, this must actually, I think this is real, you know? And that was my, that was the the bar. I just wanted them to believe what I was and, saying. And we went back and actually we watched one version and in the sound mix and we're like, oh, something isn't right. We went back to the Dime District to just record sounds of what was happening in the showroom. And I remember being in one of the showroom, just recording the ambient noise. And there was like, conversation in Russian going on over here. There was this. Cell phones were ringing. People I were thought t- you were going to get punched when we were recording oh, yes, that. Then he was walking up to like guys doing <laughs> deals on the street, dipping his mic just into like their this. conversation. Just, just sticking mic- it in there. Microphone right up to their mouth. And they're like, is everything, you got a problem? I was like, no, nah, I'm good. Just looking over here. A microphone right in there. Unbelievable. Like, yeah, I thought just, he was going to get it. But they just <laughs> kept talking. The photo is actually very funny. I, was, I totally, I don't know how I got away. You just go into this mode of, I'm invincible. And yeah, I can get filmmaking does that too, which is which is dangerous. But it's like, so you have all the sound, you listen back to it, oh, cell phone rings. So that's why like in yeah, that- but r- then what about our ADR script? Oh, yeah, I then we went back. the ADR script yes. to Rudin and, and, and Eli to basically like, all right, just so you're aware, this is what we're going into the recording <laughs> studio to record. And we're bringing all these tons of actors yes. in. They're like- from when they watched the the cut, they didn't see any. Usually, use ADR to like fix sound yes, problems. That was they didn't notice many issues, so they were cons- they were weirded out. Why it was so many days? Like, well, this is it. And I sent them a forty five page ADR like, script, it, and they were like, "This is a whole other movie happening in the background of the movie." The, the best, and it's fun because you get to like like okay, that guy right there. What is that person talking about? Right. So you actually get to write the these, nooks and crannies. Yeah, and, and, it's, and it's also like, yeah. oh, Kevin, Kevin. We like let's put more pressure on Kevin to like and Howard to get this gem. Like given to him, so we have a whole other character who becomes Kevin's best friend in the story. But he's like, he's all off screen, be like, "Yo, Kev, check this out!" Like it's like everybody's talking about it. Amazing, and yeah, it's cool. I have a, I have a lot more questions, but I'm not going to take up too much of your time. <laughs> um, We're here. Sean. What's the what has to happen for for this movie? Does it have to be like a big hit? I don't know. I, I to me, the movie got made, and and that to me is is the uh, you know. Is the, is the blessing is that we made it and we made it with the people and it's in a weird way it's exactly what I wanted it to be mm-hmm. with no compromises whatsoever and that's a testament to all of our collaborators and and you know it, I don't know to yeah, like it's st- it's stick, weird sticking to your to your yeah, ideas and, and to your guns but I don't I don't know I can't well, speak every, to that side it's of weird things. because every time we finish something we think everybody's going to want to see this thing because it just is a part of like why we wanted to express it in the first place. Like this is the itch. Everybody wants scratch. So we're like, so we always go out like thinking that. Do you remember like the first time you had like a friend who made music and you heard one of their songs like, this is actually really good. (laughs) And you're thinking like, oh, my friend's going to become like a huge star. (laughs) And then you play for other people and they're like, can you turn this off or something? That feeling kind of never really is, you know, escapes you when you're, you know, th- that's when you start to get reminded of, then you start to feel a little lonely when you're just like, oh, <laughs> it is just kind of your itch. Uh, well, that's so the thing know. is like you guys over the course of the last eight, nine, 10 years, depending on how closely you're paying attention to your careers, scrappy underdogs, mm-hmm. 
the Safties are creative, burst of energy. Their movies are uniquely their own, even if they're in completely different formats or genres. <laughs> and now you guys made a movie with Adam Sandler. Mm -hmm. And it's a big movie, or at least it feels like a big movie. Mm -hmm. And then does that change your perception or your perspective on what you're going to do no, and be? No, not at all. That's the thing. Yeah, it does not at all. It's like we're still trying to, to – It was educational. The yeah, we're, try, was we're, educational. we're still trying to learn. and, and um, But yeah, I don't think we're changed because we, it's, it's still trying to understand new things and how you can use filmmaking or narrative in a lot of ways to – to understand characters and emotions. So it's all. Yeah, it was the most, this was everything thing that we do is educate. We're lucky to be able to go through these educational uh, processes. And and this, this one in particular, we learned so much from all of the incredible veterans that mm -hmm. were surrounded, that were surrounding us. And that was, it feels like, you know, in a weird way, we're just getting started. It felt that way. I mean, Good Time, I always said it was like our first movie because it was the first movie we had a script supervisor on, first movie we had an AD on. And this was the first movie that we had a, 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 a person driving the trucks, like a Teamster. And I loved the Teamster. You know, like he was great. He was in on the movie. He was in on the movie. He would see Howard and he would like Howard. You know what I mean? And, and, uh, and we would joke around the fact that our scenic grew up on the same street yeah. in this small town in Russia as the guy, Roman, the jeweler, the guy who works in one of the, an actor in the movie. I came out and they're both smoking cigarettes outside the stage and I'm, uh, they're joking around. I'm just thinking like, oh wow. When you, when you like put it out there, it comes back to you in cool ways. Yeah. And it was just exciting to kind of get everybody on board you know, with what we were wanted to do. And everybody was so excited about it. And it I'll, felt so good. You know, I'll tell you what was that. the most educational with this movie was knowing how to skirt the line of, you know, it's a thriller, right? Knowing how to play with tension in an interesting way. And and the reason why we went with someone like Sandler is because we were inspired by a Rodney Dangerfield, by someone who's always on, someone who uses humor to kind of mm -hmm. constantly either get what they need or relieve tension and like, and or or include themselves like if someone laughs all of a sudden you're invited to the table uh and and i think the way that this movie uses humor and and like i'll tell you sitting at the uh in the on the balcony during the new york film festival screening I, the laughter i felt like gulliver's travels like listening to like the inmates laugh in yeah. a weird way was un was like really satisfying because i was like oh we we always write movies as if they're comedies and in a strange way aside from one of the films we've done Heaven knows why we didn't. It was although Buddy not, not very funny. But no. Buddy is very funny yeah. in it, but uh, he's much needed comic relief. But but um, you know, but this in like Good Time, we saw lots of humor in that movie, and but this movie actually was revol a revolving around a funny person, yeah, and seeing the way that the humor would kind of relieve the tension, and it actually is what makes the movie function. So it's in a weird way, it's a thriller comedy, and that is that was awesome to see because it was. It was something that we thought about and something that we very surgically uh, 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 kind of administered in the script. And then on set with Sandler, he would constantly bring one-liners to add to the to improvise, which was awesome. Guys, we end every episode of the show by asking filmmakers what's the last great thing they've seen. You guys been able to watch any movies? Oh. I know you've been at some festivals. Mm. What's um, the last great thing I've seen? I'm the, I saw um, In a Lonely Place. Oh, yeah. Uh, by Nick Ray. Yeah, the Bogart and, movie. Yeah. Uh, I just... Watch that's that. That's where he's the screenwriter. Yeah, yeah actually, and I just so, he, he, and he's, it's it's so um, it's such a 
you know, beautiful portrait of moodiness too. I mean, it's a real Nick Ray biography, autobiography. Oh yeah, that was, I, it's amazing. Yeah. I just, I just watched The Firm. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't believe he'd never seen The I Firm. We it has, did it as a rewatch. It's literally, it's literally a movie that I, it checks off every single box that I could possibly want in a movie. And I was like, but Similar I never. Similar to, to Gems in it a way. Is. It is. that a man So you want to know something. I actually was watching exactly yeah. in that whole ending. So there's Scott like a whole, Rudin produced that movie. Yes. Oh. And when he, he the watched. the most amazing when, thing. When omnipresent watched, score, yeah. that yes. piano all through the yes. movie. Uh, yeah. I mean, and, and Pollock is amazing. Oh, Direct. God. Incredible. Yeah. 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 And uh, he said, no, he was funny. So he said to us, like, because originally Rudin the beginning did. was a little bit longer. Rudin. The beginning of Gems. It was like 35, 40 minutes. And he's like, so the gem comes at minute 40. He's like. It's got to come sooner. I'm like, it's what called do you mean? Uncut gems. He goes, and he goes, just for example, he goes, the firm. He goes, all these drafts come in. The, he gets the job years. on page 60. 60 years go by. He gets the job on page 60. He goes, he gets it in the opening sequence. It's called now. The Firm. <laughs> he gets you the can't job introduce The Firm. The, first at an hour. the Firm might be the exact same length as your movie. It is. It is. It's, it's, like it's 215. 215. It's exactly. And that's an early Rudin movie. But, yeah, which is crazy. And then um, and then I, yeah, I was just watched The Pawn, Pawn Broker. I, th- I had seen it before, but I didn't realize it, but I saw it again. Oh, so also similar yeah. vibes to Uncut Gems. For sure. And, uh, well, another Lumet movie that I oh. that I that I didn't watch really recently, but it's uh, – a Stranger Among Us, which yeah. gets a lot I've never of heat, seen that. a lot of, it a lot of it gets a lot of flack. I mean, it's Melanie Griffin playing a cop who goes undercover in the Diamond District as a Hasidic woman, and it's yeah, it's there's a lot of artifice in it. James Gandolfini, early or I think it's one of his Some first movies. Stuff, yeah. He's great in it, and they shot in the Diamond District. Only two movies have really shot in the Diamond District: Marathon Man, obviously the great the the great scene, and uh, um, and A Stranger Among Us. Amazing. And, and and now gems. But yeah, that was really, really hard to do. People don't let you take a photograph from the Diamond District. I would encourage anybody to go see it. I thought Uncut Gems was uh, masterful. Thank you, Josh, Benny, thank thanks, you. guys. Appreciate great. It. Thank you to Josh and Benny Safty for joining the show. Please stay tuned. Early next week, Amanda and I will be back to talk about the reception of Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker and 1917 and just about anything else that's happening in the world of movies. 